A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Knowing what the goal was elimination, and here is a system that would get us there with clear steps that were simple to follow and outlined and defined by the government and communicated to us. It filtered it down to a language that even children could understand. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today we are deconstructing the success of New Zealand's response to coronavirus through a lens of design. In a conversation with Anna Monroe, a human-centered design strategist who you may remember from episode 93, and Akiko Kuramatsu, a design and culture journalist in New Zealand. As you know, New Zealand is considered a major success story in how they reacted to and contained the spread of coronavirus. We wanted to take a deep look at that success by doing what designers do, taking it apart to see how it works. Before we get into it, I want to take a moment to offer a sincere and deeply heartfelt thank you to healthcare workers, essential workers, and everyone on the front lines. You are all heroes. And I want to check in on you listeners out there. How are you doing? This has been and continues to be a time of tremendous change. I hope you're safe and well and able to look for the silver linings. Okay, now let's talk to Anna and Akiko. My name is Anna Monroe. I live in Los Angeles, California, and I am a designer uh, working in the civic design space. My name is Akiko Kuramatsu. I am in Auckland, New Zealand, and I am a culture writer and a journalist um, and a curator here in Auckland for the New Zealand 
architecture and design film festival alongside another female curator that I work with. I am very excited to have this conversation because, um, you know, here in the U.S., we've had a disjointed and problematic response to the coronavirus pandemic. And Anna and I have been having conversations about this and trying to figure out, she's coming from a civic design angle and trying to figure out what's happening and how it could be better. And as we're trying to wrap our heads around this, you know, she made contact with you. You guys know each other, your colleagues, right? We were friends. We were friends. We were at school together, maybe. We've, we actually met when we were teenagers, I think. <laughs> we did. Oh. I love this. So anyway, we had this brilliant idea to get you on the phone so that we could kind of, because New Zealand's response has been playing out with remarkable effectiveness. And so I wanted to get all three of us together to just kind of deconstruct what New Zealand has done so we can maybe get a handle on what some of the factors and actions were that led to such a favorable outcome. Thank you so much for lending your voices to this discussion. And why don't we start by learning a little bit more about where you're coming from? My name is Akiko. I was born in Japan and I hold a Japanese citizenship. I was raised between five different countries around the world and educated in the U.S. where I met Anna in New York City. And I ended up marrying, I met my husband um, in Paris and married him and lived in London for a few years. But as a New Zealander, he wanted to come back to his beautiful country. Um, and I decided to follow him back here. So I just want to clarify that I was not born and raised in New Zealand, but I have moved to New Zealand as an immigrant. Um, and I am on, almost on my third year of residing here in Auckland as a permanent resident. Anna, where are you coming from? Well, I, I live here in Los Angeles, California, but I actually was not born and raised here either. I grew up in rural Georgia, and I mostly wanted to contribute to this conversation because I think that, Akiko, you offer such an amazing perspective with your background uh, and experience and curatorial eye to something that is truly a, a global problem. And the asymmetrical responses, maybe not the most efficient way to deal with the global pandemic. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Asymmetrical response. What do, what do you mean by that? That means New Zealand's response doesn't match in scale or, or process to the US response, which doesn't match in scale or process to the Taiwan response or to the German response or to Brazilian. And of course, I'm mixing up countries here that are more successful and less successful, but that's intentional. That's asymmetry. Got it. Breaking down New Zealand's success, as I understand it, as of the recording of this conversation, it's been 20 or so days since the last new case of COVID-19. The mm -hmm. last known infected person has recovered. There have been only 22 COVID-related deaths. Uh, they have one of the highest per capita testing rates, over 300,000 people, and you're fully reopened. You guys are all back in business with the exception of border restrictions. That's right. That's phenomenal. It's been incredible. It's it's almost a month, actually, since we've reopened. And it is surreal because we were locked down in a very with very strict rules to what we could and could not do here um, for about seven weeks. Um, and my husband and I both worked from home. We were 
isolated from our friends and family. And much like the rest of the world, we were living in a very uncertain time, not sure of what the future held for us. What would you say were some of the contributing factors to the success of how New Zealand responded to this? I mean, for one thing, it's got isolated geography. So Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's a major, major reason that New Zealand was shielded from the pandemic in the way that it was. The first confirmed case here wasn't reported until late February. And that's almost a month after the US and the UK and Australia had their first cases. So we were able to kind of look at the rest of the world, see what was going on, assess and put in measures early. And that's definitely an advantage to the distance and the isolation of New Zealand being in um, our little corner of the world here in the (laughs) Pacific. (laughs) What would you say like the social and cultural attitudes are there? I mean, it is a very laid back culture here in New Zealand. Um, it's a nation of, of European immigrants. More than 70% of the population live within Western cultural norms. So you greet each other with a handshake or a hug or a kiss. Um, and there is a, a minority indigenous Maori population, which is about 16, 17% of the population. Um, and they live by a mixed uh, Western and indigenous cultural culture. And I think um, most of you may know that there is a deep um, and oftentimes dark history of colonization here in New Zealand and that the minority indigenous population have um, experienced some some heavy intergenerational trauma of colonization and a lot of their language, a lot of their identity, a lot of their um, cultures and customs um, have been pushed aside, and uh, but they do hold many of their cultural rituals, such as meeting the nose and the forehead, called a hongi, when they greet, greet one another. And one thing that really surprised me when I first visited New Zealand um, is just, you know, because of that relaxed culture and so much of the population living in rural or coastal areas, purely from kind of a hygiene, a culture of hygiene point of view, but that shoes are optional in public spaces. Um, It is considered normal within New Zealand culture not to wear shoes kind of walking down the street or at the supermarket. And having lived before moving to New Zealand in London, Tokyo, and New York, it was really quite shocking to see people with no footwear on. But I think this kind of shows how relaxed New Zealand's are and how relaxed their hygiene practices are. And the practice of hand washing or hand sanitizing or wearing masks were not part of everyday life before COVID-19. That paints a pretty clear picture. And then, you know, something that we've seen from over here in the States, I mean, that I've been particularly impressed with is Leadership. It seems to me from from over here that it's been decisive, compassionate, organized, and uh, communication's been really effective. But I want to hear from you because you're on the ground there. How would you describe the leadership? I think it's hard to 
to talk to talk about New Zealand and not mention our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And before I I came to the recording of this podcast, I promised myself I wouldn't sound like such a Jacinda fangirl um, <laughs> because, because she has done such an incredible job and um, her leadership style of leading with empathy has been so effective and so unique and so refreshing. And I think that her inclusive style of leadership has been a, a major key to, to the success of containing the pandemic here. Uh, her government has kept the pandemic as a health issue, not a political issue. And they have largely avoided the type of battle between economic and public health interests that other countries are experiencing. So we've seen a cooperation between public health institutions, politicians, and the people who live here in New Zealand. One of the things that Ardern said um, the onset of the pandemic is that she said, we will get through this together, but only if we stick together. So please be strong and be kind. And that really set the tone for how the government was dealing with the pandemic. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible to, to watch her navigate this crisis. And many of you may remember the Christchurch terrorist attack that happened um, and her quick and swift and decisive actions taken against gun control mm -hmm. after that incident. But there were so many examples of her decisiveness and her her leading by example throughout the last two months. For example, um, Ardern, along with the ministers and the public service chief executives, immediately took a 20% pay cut lasting six months. And this was to show to the country that they were standing in solidarity and they wanted to show leadership to the, those who were being hit hardest during the pandemic. And specifically, just to give you an idea, Ardern's salary was cut by about 47,000 New Zealand dollars. That wasn't just a ornamental demonstration. That was real. That was. And so many um, of those around her took the same action. It really shined a bright light on her, on her leadership and how effective it is. I think her ratings, based on numerous sources, have skyrocketed during um, the last two, two months. And her leadership, her leadership style and her, her, just her empathy that she showed to those who were hit by the pandemic was, was really warm um, and comforting. And it made us feel safe. It was very, very inspiring to see. She also closed everything down very strictly and very early, right? That's right. That's right. So something that she said and she has repeated is, um, go hard, go early. And with no confirmed cases in the country, New Zealand banned entry of foreigners from or who have traveled through mainland China by February 3rd. So that was when there were, there were no reported cases to the Ministry of Health here. Um, and then with 40 cases confirmed, she completely shut the borders, um, except to Kiwi nationals coming back home. And these early closures helped shield the population from the breakout that was happening that we saw overseas. 
we entered a very, like I said, a very strict high-level lockdown with only 102 confirmed cases, um, four probable cases, and no deaths. Um, And this early entry into self-isolation and social distancing made contact tracing and managing the community outbreak possible. So about closing the borders, in the United States, we had states who attempted maybe to regulate their borders, not close them because that's actually illegal under the Constitution. States cannot impede the movement of people or goods across state lines. Um, But there was a concern, right? People leaving large city centers like New York and going to places like Connecticut or Vermont or any place like that. How did uh, or did you all see in New Zealand concern around people leaving city centers and going into the countryside? Or was that just not an issue? It's absolutely an issue. Under level four lockdown, we were not allowed to visit our family in, in the regions. We weren't allowed to go to our holiday homes. They're called batches here, but um, any secondary homes that people may have near the water or, or in, the, in the mountains, um, they were not allowed to visit their batches. So travel was strictly restricted. We were confined in our homes except for kind of these mental health exercise and breaks um, that we could have in our neighborhood. But we were restricted to a very, very small area outside of our homes. How did everybody get on board with that? Was there resistance? Using Google, they mapped out the movement of people around New Zealand during this level four lockdown. And it was impressive to see that it showed that most people abided by the lockdown rules and that they they stayed confined to their homes and their immediate neighborhoods. Um, so there was a lot of clear direction given from the government on what was to be done and a lot of compliance from the public. Clear direction. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm jealous of it and I I believe in it so wholeheartedly. And we have not had that here. We've, We've definitely had a bunch of governors and mayors doing their damnedest. But we've not had any kind of unified, clear direction. How was that communicated to the population of New Zealand? Yeah, I I found this really impressive um, as well that there was amazing management of um, and communication throughout. And one of the things they did was to set a national goal and strategy. Um, And they communicated this to the public. So the national goal, and everyone knew this, um, was elimination rather than suppression or mitigation. So while I found this a a differentiating term to the rest of the world, everyone else was and is talking about flattening the curve. Um, We heard this a lot and it was used as as a hashtag. But for us, it was about elimination. And I don't think elimination uh, means eradicating the virus permanently from New Zealand, because once you open up borders and you have free people coming in and out of the country, it's very hard to to kind of say, no, we, you know, we will we have shut the virus out completely. But it means that we've confidently eliminated eliminated the chains of transmission 
in the community mm-hmm. and can effectively contain any future imported cases from overseas. I wonder, has it ever happened in New Zealand before? I mean, this pandemic has hit New Zealand in an unprecedented way, for sure. And I spoke to a public health physician who has been pulled into the COVID-19 response. And she has, you know, she has revealed that it, there was an unpreparedness, lack of preparation for a pandemic of this size to hit New Zealand. It comes from, you know, much of the similar issues that they have in all around the world that has a, a public health care system, but it is generally underfunded kind of future proofing for a pandemic is not the uh, is not the biggest priority and has not been the biggest priority for the public health health sector so um, it wasn't like New Zealand had foresight or based on um, um, past experience of SARS or um, another viral outbreak um, it was in fact unprepared for this pandemic we'll be right back after this quick break Support for Clever comes from Typetora. Totally transform the typography on your website in minutes with Typetora. Typetora's technology allows your text to scale perfectly in any layout and any viewpoint. And with typography packages that contain all the fonts, sizing, and spacing information necessary to create a beautiful site, styling the most important content on your website is as easy as adding a link. We can say that because we just added Typetora to our website, cleverpodcast.com, and it was super easy. The code was as simple as copy-paste, and their team of humans, not robots, was there to walk us through it if we needed assistance. Our favorite part was testing out all the font options on our site to see how a simple typography change made our site seem fresh. Typetora also just released a WordPress plugin that brings this functionality to your WordPress website. You can change your typography like you change your layout themes with just a click. Typetora is free to use and package subscriptions start at just $19 a month. Get a month free with promo code CLEVER. Check out typetura.com slash clever to learn more. That's typetura, T-Y-P-E-T-U-R-A dot com slash clever. Support for Clever comes from Skillshare. The online learning community is offering our listeners two months of free premium membership. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. I am a lifelong learner. Honestly, my curiosity is what compelled me to start this podcast. I had an insatiable desire to learn from the most fascinating people I could find. In addition to learning from personal stories, I'm always eager to pick up new skills and explore new ways to express my ideas. This is why I'm so excited about Skillshare. It's a veritable amusement park of fascinating people teaching all the things that I'm eager to explore, but too daunted to learn on my own. And right now, Skillshare is such a great resource to have. To stay inspired, express yourself, and connect to a community of creatives with classes on topics like filmmaking, illustration, home styling, and creative writing. I'm super excited to dive into a class on how to make awesome merch with Aaron Draplin. You remember him from Clever episode 74? And a documentary class with Dan Dan Liu. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Clever, where our listeners get two free months of premium membership. That's two months free at Skillshare.com slash Clever. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. We had all kinds of issues with not being able to ramp up testing and not having enough PPE to protect people. Were there issues like that? Or it it sounds like you guys got it under control before it got so enormous that that you over overwhelmed the system. Yeah, I think Ardern's kind of stance of go hard, go early was effective and kind of minimizing the need for all of the the resources that would have been needed if if hospitals were overwhelmed and we were um, experiencing a severe lack of of PPE or um, other medical needs, I think that it would have been a very, a very different story. But the go hard, go early stance mitigated some of that, some of those kind of reactionary measures that we would have had to take. And I understand that there was a four-level alert system that was qu- pretty quickly unveiled that helped guide people through the pandemic yeah. itself and and how restrictive things needed to be. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's That's right. And I and this is something I think that interests a lot of leaders around the world. It's a four-level alert system um, that gives the public an indication of where we are at at all times throughout the campaign. So as um, the pandemic escalated here, the alert levels rose and signaled a sense of seriousness. And then when it escalated, it gave us a sense of confidence and, and accomplishment and it really unified the entire nation, giving us a sense of and a feeling that we were all in it together. Um, it's called the COVID-19 alert system. And the four levels were level one, prepare, level two, reduce, level three, restrict, and level four, lockdown. So when we entered this alert system, we started at level two quickly escalated to level four, where we were out for about five weeks, went down level by level with the drop of new cases. And we are now down at level one, where we have very few restrictions in place, um, except for a closed border. The whole entire population of New Zealand always knew where you stood. You always knew what level you were on and what associated behaviors and restrictions and cautions were associated with that level. That's that's right. And I think um, coupled with kind of knowing what the goal was as well, that the goal was elimination. And here is a system that would get us there um, with clear steps um, that were simple to follow and outlined and defined by the government and communicated to us, it made it really easy to understand. 
it didn't make it this scary kind of unknown virus that was floating everywhere. It filtered it down to a language that we all understood that almost e- that even children could understand the four levels of lockdown. That kind of simple vocabulary, simple, simple language was really useful. I feel like over here in the United States, and Anna, you can chime in with your perspective too, but we were more playing whack-a-mole. <laughs> like these hotspots were, were cropping up all over and we all had different levels of like fear and urgency mm-hmm. and lockdown. And it was sort of loosely defined by geography. Sometimes mayors were setting it, sometimes governors. Um, And there was no cohesiveness. Obviously, we're a big country with individual states. And, you know, movement is a little bit more difficult to to control. But a clear system like that, I think, would have given everybody a sense of how serious it is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that what's really sadly ironic here is that the United States has a very long tradition of this exact sort of model, this exact design strategy to mitigate emergencies and disasters. The most well-known one, probably, um, I might be speaking because I'm from a hurricane quarter, is the hurricane and tornado alert system. So we all know those levels, you know, if a big one's coming, it's like a, it's a five to a seven. And um, they all get names and they're named by in order of the alphabet. And you know what triggers are um, stay at home. You know when to board up your houses. You know when to evacuate. The other one that's pertinent here in Southern California is that Southern California Electric now has a stepped alert system for wildfire um, risk. And they actually shut off the power to um, to different customer bases when there's a high, a very high risk of, of wildfire outbreak. And so this model is not unknown here in the United States. I think the difference uh, is that Akiko and in, in, in New Zealand, you all accepted that there was a risk, right? You accepted that COVID-19 is a huge risk to the population. Mm-hmm. And in the mm-hmm. United States, to your point, Amy, it was not accepted. Some people were saying this is not a risk and other people were saying it's a huge risk. And so if you don't have a collective acceptance of risk, then you cannot put in place a strategy for mitigating that risk. Anna, that's a really good point. The hurricane system, we could have easily implemented. We also have the terror alert yes, system. Yes, we do. It's actually and, very effective. Mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't had a major terrorist attack since September 11th. I have no insight into the intelligence community. I want to very much emphasize that. But it feels like it's statistically improbable that no one's tried, right? It it could have been so easy just to implement you know, adapt one of the systems that we already have and implement that to help communicate to people the level of severity. Hmm, that's a really nice parallel. Thank you for pointing that out. And Akiko, I wanted to try and understand what were some of the mechanics of implementing this plan? Were there like ap- tech applications developed or communications campaigns or policies that were put in place? Those who know... Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern um, may not know that she holds a Bachelor of Communication Studies, and um, specifically in public relations and political science, which she studied before entering her career in politics. So she is known as an extremely effective communicator, focusing on bringing people together. 
Amy, many of your listeners um, who come from advertising or design backgrounds, um, they may recognize um, a very kind of distinct campaign feel to her communication strategy. Um, she leveraged many of the of the tools, um, such as a very simple phrase that was repeated over and over again to drive a point home. It was stay home, stay safe, be kind. And it almost operated like a tagline. Um, and she would say that at the end of her press conferences. She would say that at the end of her Facebook live videos. Um, she would post something on Instagram and it would end with stay home, stay safe, be kind. It was it was so effective um, in its simplicity um, and the consistent re- repeating of it um, drove it really into our psyche. Um, and we all knew um, that the three most important things during lockdown was to stay home, stay safe and to, and to be kind to each other. Um, so that operated almost like a tagline. And with that tagline, she also offered some really visual and flexible language and vocabulary. She established what a bubble is, what a cluster is. And many may not have been familiar with what an essential worker is, um, but she defined these these terms very clearly. A bubble is your family or it's the roommates that you live with under one roof. And once that you have acknowledged your bubble, there is there was a visual element to it where you couldn't break your bubble, um, you didn't go and pop other people's bubbles, um, but in very limited cases, such as when you share custody with children in the same city or if an elderly family, family member lived um, alone and needed care, you could actually join those bubbles. That's so effective. Um, yeah. <laughs> so to paint that picture. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, yeah, and it, and I loved also how flexible a bubble is, and that you know, like I said before, even a child could could visualize um, what happens when when you burst a bubble. Mm-hmm. Nothing good, nothing good, nothing good happens when you burst a bubble. So, so there was a bubble. A cluster was when there were ten or more cases connected through transmission, who are not all part of the same household. So a cluster would be maybe a wedding that happened in in February where there was um, a case from overseas that attended that wedding and spread. Um, there was community spread in that cluster to 10 or more people. Or it may be a tourist area in, in Queenstown that had an outbreak of 10 or more people in that specific tourist spot, or it may be um, elderly home, um, home care, that facility that that had an, a community outbreak of 10 or more people. And so that would be called a cluster. That's also very descriptive. The, the bubble, you get this picture of a sort of safe interior space with a with a membrane that's keeping you safe. And totally. the cluster just feels a little bit chaotic. And there's, there's complete permeableness, like people are coming and going, and you can yeah. see why. And I wasn't sure, is that, are those terms used in 
in the U.S. right now? Cluster is. That bubble is not. Yeah, we've 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 talked about cluster a little bit, but we we did not. Ha- it would have been so helpful to have the idea of a bubble, mm. even just to to share with our children. You know, to mm. language to talk about this with our kids, or you know, even just amongst ourselves, we've talked about like our inner circle and like mm. the idea of joining bubbles has come up, but we all have to fish around for our own language yeah. for it. And not yeah. everybody has defined it for themselves. Right, right. And I that was, yeah, that was so helpful. And, and to know exactly what an essential worker is and does, highlighting essential healthcare providers, food suppliers who work as part of the food supply chains, garbage and waste removal, electrical and internet suppliers, um, banks, and those institutions that are part of the financial infrastructure to know who was supporting our livelihood um, every day during lockdown was, was, was very, very helpful. And also it really uplifted the people who were, who were essential during that time. So it sounds like language was an important part of this. Yeah, it was it was a, a huge part of it. It was used in tandem with um, a graphic design language. So a graphic design um, campaign that was instantly recognizable and told us this was an official message from the government was used consistently through the last two months. Um, it comprised of a yellow, white, and black color palette. It had this diagonal stripe graphic this large, clear um, type in black. And sometimes it had very simple graphic illustrations. So this branding was was used on on all official communications regarding COVID-19. And it, it was used on posters, on social media, on TV ads, and mailers that we would receive at home giving us information about the pandemic. Businesses were able to download and print signage communicating what level we were in, mm. what social distance, distancing measures were in place. And as soon as a contact tracing app was available, you could download um, a COVID tracer QR code poster um, and put it at the entryway of your business. And this graphic design language was consistent across all of these materials. So if you were driving... Um, going to the supermarket, you would see it um, on a billboard. You would see it on on your phone if you were browsing Instagram or Facebook. It really infiltrated every part of our our lives during the lockdown, and it was so recognizable um, and so ubiquitous that that again a child could recognize that this was some sort of official information about the pandemic. So I want to add here that hearing this makes me extremely oddly proud of New Zealand. I have nothing to be proud of. I'm not a part of New Zealand. I'm very (laughs) proud of New Zealand somehow. It feels very humane, very smart. And it also makes me incredibly taken aback at at the U.S. response. Because again, like the alert system, we actually do have an incredibly robust graphic design system in the U.S. It's called the U.S. Web Design System, and it's actually written into law that every federal, it's only federal because obviously it doesn't tell the states what to do, 
um, every federal digital communication must use the U.S. web design system. It's there. I've worked with it. You can work with it. It's open source. And so, the, the again, the possibility of having this type of graphic language is absolutely at our fingertips in this country. And we just missed the mark. And that makes me really upset. I'm my blood's <laughs> boiling. But, <laughs> I had no idea. Thank you for, for illuminating that aspect. Cause I was about to ask you, like, how would we go about doing that in the States? And I'm really mad to find out that we already have a system in place and it just wasn't utilized. Yeah, you can. Um, it's it's open source. So you can download it on GitHub right now if you want to use it in your digital communications. But again, I think it goes back to the consensus that there is risk and that there needs to be a concerted response. We didn't have that consensus. And so the strategy that you all in New Zealand were able to construct and execute on could not even be started. Quick question, technical question. You mentioned there were QR code posters that businesses could could print and mm-hmm. post at the entryway. Was that so that you could scan it with your phone and it would enter your information into a contact tracing app or That's right. So so QR codes weren't really ubiquitous here. Nothing that kind of led to the QR code being a solution, but suddenly it appeared on as a tool during the pandemic as a way to contact trace. So I would say that it it was a very risky and highly experimental move for New Zealand. And I I actually love that they put something out that was experimental and imperfect. And they took a risk in putting something like this out, out there and trusted the the public to to be able to figure out how to utilize this tool. So we would scan it with our phones and it would lead to a site where you could enter very simple details on where you are, who you are with, and it would log that information into your own account. Um, And it would be it would be used to in the future if there was a case that um, an active case, it would be used to, to contact trace and provide more information for those who are in that vicinity. And that was all proactive. That wasn't, we have a case, now we need to figure out who else you've been around. It's like, log yourself, keep a diary of this so that we know where you've been in case a case turns up. That's right. That's right. And with no precedent of a culture of using QR codes, it was an interesting step that they took to to provide QR codes across the country um, for people to to use and um, utilize as as a main contact tracing tool for the nation. So I use it. Um, every business that I enter has the QR code poster on the entryway. Um, that I scan with my phone and it takes two seconds for me to register where I've been. I hope that in the future it, it, it will be useful if there are more cases here. That's really innovative. We don't have this exact, well, it's not like the graphic design system, but it, we don't have this exact thing, but we do have the potential at a local level to do that. I don't know if you've ever used it, Amy, but here in LA, we have LA 311. It came out of New York 311. It used to just be like a call-in, you know, but now it's an app. Mm -hmm. And 
it's where you can drop a pin, like very specific pin and say, there's a pothole here or my garbage isn't being collected or, you know, various and sundry civic things that happen that you don't need like emergency services for. So as you're describing this, Akiko, I, I just can only think that a, a simple sort of extension to an LA 411 style app, and they're really, really functional, could actually get us closer to there. Definitely not to the extent of New Zealand because it, it requires the consent of the population. But we have, again, the tools. We just don't have the application. And I wonder also, um, I come from Japan where things like apps would, would never, ever be released in a developing form. Japanese culture inherently um, likes to perfect things before they and, and test before they release something like this. And I think it shows an aspect of the New Zealand culture that they can release an imperfect app um, that is still developing and let everyone know that there will be updates made to the usability and the effectiveness of the app and trust that the public will still experiment and, uh, and accept it um, without it being perfect. Well, I also think the swiftness with which it was deployed combined with the graphic design language and the confidence the public had in, in the efforts the government was making all kind of worked in a beautiful synergy. Absolutely. Earlier, like I mentioned, Prime Minister Dern's effective communication was such a pillar of this pandemic response in New Zealand. And one of the things that she did, and I think that um, leaders, presidents, prime ministers, governors held these kind of press conferences um, around the world. But Prime Minister Ardern held a a press conference at 1 p.m. every day, um, and it was broadcast on TV and radio, as well as streamed on, on Facebook Live. But the press conference always opened with the PM deferring to her Director General of Health, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield, to give updates on cases, including the latest new active and recovered cases, clusters, and deaths. And although the Prime Minister was front and center at these press briefings, if she would be asked a question from a journalist about health, she would always defer to Dr. Bloomfield for clear fact and science-based answers. I thought that was a really great example of, of leadership, of seeing Prime Minister rely on someone um, who, who knew more about public health than she does, and having the trust and confidence to have Dr. Ashley speak for himself. And he was such a calm voice during a chaotic time. And he has emerged as somewhat of a national hero um, and a local celebrity <laughs> from his sudden exposure to the, the, to, the, to the general public through these daily press conferences. So much so that there's now merch. There's <laughs> merch. <tote bags>. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the, the director of general of health um, has merch, um, not made by him, but there's totes and t-shirts with the doctor's face, calling him the curve crusher. <laughs> and you can um, 
purchase this merch, and I, I believe the funds go to a good cause. So these updates were a daily dose of reassurance delivered with a kind of calm and compassion and certainty that the public needed at that time. No one person can know everything. So mm. the the deference to somebody who knows more than the prime minister does is reassuring. And then obviously, like the public adoration of him means they're all relying on him to help help get us through this. And nobody's mm-hmm undermining what he's saying. We've had some undermining here in the States that I think has really done a disservice to our unity in this mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our Dr. Anthony Fauci is, became a little bit of a hero as well, but he did not get the same support from leadership mm-hmm. as, as I think would have been beneficial for us all to have you know, a trustworthy source to just sort of sink into, okay, he knows what's happening. We're going to follow his lead, but maybe next pandemic. Um, yeah. And it's, it is comforting to see a unified front. Absolutely. Even if the public health sector is in chaos and they weren't prepared for this pandemic and they are they are really, you know, just trying to keep their heads above water. To see a unified front at the daily briefing, always fact-based and always calm um, with the kind of authority that the public wanted to trust, it did give us a sense of confidence and safety that I think that, that we needed to, to get through a tough time. So, you know, here I was thinking about the press conferences uh, Dr. Fauci, and then uh, the confer- the press conferences that here in Los Angeles we had at one point, I think at a daily level, they were for the city government. So, you know, one of the things that has come out as a strength in the United States system from this pandemic is that with multiple kind of layers of government comes the, the ability to, to respond. One of the first people to take this seriously was the mayor of Austin who shut down South by Southwest in February. And I think that was like such a cool mm-hmm. move. Do you all have those same layers or is New Zealand just not structured that way? And it really was all about the the kind of federal or national government response. You know, something that we, that I should have mentioned earlier was that, you know, the population here is, is shy of 5 million people. Oh, so it's small. So it's a fraction of the population in the United States. The reason why you need so many levels of leadership at a federal and state is, I think, due to the the population and managing that number of people across the country. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's a very different scale. But, you know, I, I it's just very interesting because undermining, to your point, Amy, is so uh, corrosive that I think even even a few a few detractors in a pandemic where when it's life and death can really do a lot of damage. Agreed. And I'm just thinking, you know, even at scale, the federal government can issue guidelines and best practices and assets and tools and graphic design language and advise on language to use around things and then distribute that out to yeah. local governments um, in order to deploy and at that point, you know, you may get some people who don't adhere to everything as specifically, 
but still we've got some sort of cohesive idea of the seriousness of this. Absolutely. And that's why systems like the National Weather Alert System, Hurricane uh, Alert System, work at the federal level because pandemics and hurricanes and tornadoes don't care what state you're in. They don't Mm -hmm. go to political Mm -hmm. lines. And so having a a federal strategy to bind together um, state responses is in fact the point of the federal government. There are some things that that don't stop where the line crosses from Georgia to Alabama or whatever. That's what a pandemic is. Absolutely. You all are pretty much, you're at level one, which is completely reopened except international travel. Is that right? That's right. So we can fully participate in society without any COVID-19 related restrictions at the moment. Um, the only difference to kind of pre-pandemic life here is the strict border measures that remain. And in that, I mean, you know, there's no need to kind of go back over the pillars that you have already outlined for us, but are there triggers for if you go back up to two or three or four? Are those outlined or what, what are the pillars of that plan to say this is safe, this is not safe? There hasn't been an outline of how many cases new cases there needs to be for us to go up a level back up to level two Mm -hmm. or kind of any kind of numerical figure attached to any of the alert levels. But we know that there are still kind of daily updates being made and surveillance at the borders. And and now that there are no new cases here locally and community outbreak, is very low probability. I think it's a matter of, again, kind of communication um, and leadership when those new cases arrive. That makes a lot of sense. Given your experience in the pandemic, without those articulated thresholds, like numerical, we need this many cases to go back up to level two or whatever. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about not quite knowing what what the threshold is? How does... Yeah, like as a citizen or as residents, how do you feel? So many of us here, we have really pivoted our priority to the economy. We feel confident that our health is secure, um, and we need to we need to help bring the economy back. It is, you know, the New Zealand economy is expected to sink into recession. Mm. Um, so it is an urgent priority with the border still being closed. Sectors like tourism, hospitality are experiencing a, a devastating um, economic time. So unemployment is on the rise. So there's a lot of work to be done here. Um, and quickly, as soon as um, the pandemic was under control, we've seen the prime minister bring in our economic ministers and call on them to raise awareness of what New Zealanders can do to revive the sinking economy. Currently, there's a $12.1 billion economic package from the government, wow. including wage subsidy, interest-free business loans, access to free retraining that many of us have taken advantage of. But aside from that, there's a lot of communication about supporting local small businesses and domestic travel. There is a advertising agency here 
called Special Group um, here in Auckland, and they work with Tourism New Zealand. They have a beautiful campaign about New Zealanders discovering their backyards. Um, so now that we can travel domestically, why don't we go and rediscover regional parts of New Zealand in the form of, of lodges or great walks or um, a camping trip with your family? So there's a lot of effort in um, putting money back into the, to the economy. Oh, that's beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know that here in the U.S., the um, Department of Interior, which administers all the national parks, is looking at, and you can see this on rec- recreation.gov, looking at that same sort of thing, but it just doesn't feel like we've heard it, Amy. I don't know if you would agree. I haven't. Yeah. I don't even know if it's really safe to go to a gas station, but, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I wish we could do the same because, I mean, New Zealand is famous, famous, famous for its beautiful landscape. And, mm. um, you know, we have some we have some stuff in the U.S. that's not bad to look at, I think. <laughs> oh, my a gosh. Few things. Yeah, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I love a road trip. And I'm honestly, it's like so earnestly itching to get out and reconnect with my, my country and my people. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up in Michigan, there was this campaign, Say Yes to Michigan, and it was, you know, showing you all the beautiful lakes and opportunities. I don't know. I just, it it seeped into my psyche and it made me love my state and how beautiful it was. And I really wish we had something like that happening here in the U.S. because I've been looking at camper vans and to rent online and like thinking about getting out on the open road, but I'm serious. I still don't know like what the safety level is (laughs) because totally. But I wanted to ask you too, Akiko, you said there was access to free retraining. Yeah. So this is a new initiative that was announced um, a few weeks ago, but for those who have lost their jobs and which there are many across many, many sectors, they're basically through their website, educating about what kind of classes are available, what kind of training is available, and you can choose to sign up. And it is completely free. It is nationwide and it is immediate. It starts immediately. We don't have anything like that here, do we? We don't at the federal level. We have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of individual programs through the Department of Labor and the Department of Education. But like so many of the things that we've talked about in this time, they're they're pretty siloed. I cannot off the top of my head think of a single place, a single place to go that I could be like, oh, go there. You know, again, the possibility, the resources are there, the the sort of um, decision to do that, to allocate resources, to bring together these various programs, which could be very effective I don't, I don't know of any efforts to do that. So our problem is that all these programs are siloed. They're all called something different. Yes. Nobody knows where to find them. I know if I did a Google search for free job retraining, it would turn up search results that it would be absolutely unusable. Yeah. Right, and, right, right. And so I'm thinking back to the language thing. Even if all of those different programs employed a certain kind of even key search terms that were all the same or something so that a Google search might be more useful if they were all called something optimized, called something similar or Mm. employed something, some common language in their descriptions. 
maybe it would be easier. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, just I think two weeks ago, maybe one week ago, time doesn't have a meaning in lockdown, as we all know. Um, (laughs) The new civilrights.justice.gov launched, and it's a portal for lodging uh, civil rights complaints that have been discriminated against for employment, housing, education, various things like that. You go to this portal and you um, can register your complaint and it will be read and it will be investigated. And it was always read and it was always investigated. It was just incredibly, like you said, Amy, hard to navigate, like tough to find. What do you Google? Like, where does it come from? And that's actually built using the U.S. web design system. So it looks very authoritative. It's very consistent. It's pretty easy to do it even when you're in distress, which of course is the nature of a person who has experienced discrimination or a job loss. These are just incredibly like traumatic experiences in a life. And so it is the responsibility Mm -hmm. of the designers to create the easiest possible way to get help. I love that thought. Like if I were one of those people and, and um, I feel so privileged that I've been able to keep my job, but I feel so if I were to have lost a full-time job, then getting a apprenticeship to retrain in an industry like building and construction, agriculture, manufacturing, or or nursing, um, counseling, something that was so essential to communities would be incredibly inspiring. um, And for all of that to be free for two years, I think would give you a, a, a path out of your situation and something to look forward to in the future. Um, so I think this was a very astute yeah, initiative to be passed at the moment. You know, you said a path, and that reminded me of the psychological value, too, of having a path to follow, because mm. you don't feel like there's any way out of your current trauma. Um, and you don't know, you feel like you have to sort of carve the path yourself and it could be anything it's really daunting but Anna and I have been talking a lot about too like we're, we need to redistribute our workforce and our creativity and our human resources in a post-pandemic world they're not necessarily going to land where they landed before the pandemic so the retraining opportunities are going to be crucial for instance here in the states we don't have a I mean, we don't have great contact tracing in place yet, but the idea is that we're going to have to, we're going to, it's going to be human based and we're going to need to hire and train a gazillion <laughs> contact tracers. Mm. It's so true. <laughs> and why isn't there a simple website I can just go and find out if I could qualify to get training to be a contact tracer? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Speaking about these like disjointed, like very traumatic, experiences like being in lockdown for many weeks and then possibly losing a job and needing to retrain. Retraining is such a scary concept. How is the government managing public confusion and concern? Um, It's now Mm -hmm. we're kind of like out of the like complete anxiety moment and into this long tunnel of recovery or you all are in New Zealand. How's that going? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think part of the recovery is going to be um, this inquiry. The government has launched an inquiry into the urgent legislation it used to implement its alert level system in lockdown. 
Um, so they will be looking into effectiveness of that. And um, additionally, there is a group of Otago University experts, including Professor Michael Baker and Professor Nick Wilson, who are very well known in the public health sectors, who have asked for an independent probe into the government's wider response to the pandemic. And they have pointed out that that New Zealand has done an extraordinarily successful job of stopping the virus. Um, but there is a need for a deep inquiry to understand the effectiveness of various pandemic controls to make adjustments or improvements in the short and longer term. Wow. So that's like a design thinking. We, mm. we prototype something and then we look for its weaknesses and its fractures in order to make those better, stronger, or, you know, adapt yeah. them to make a better thing, system, product, whatever it is. And that's what you are doing here. You've taken your plan and instead of patting yourself on the back, you're like, okay, let's let's really analyze this and figure out where it could even be better. Mm-hmm. And I think the first step of that is is acknowledging that you don't have all the answers and you and this is an unprecedented situation where you don't know if what you've done has been the most effective in leading you to a ses- successful outcome. So I think these inquiries are really important in not only answering kind of questions, ongoing qu- questions from the public, but answering your own questions, um, the government answering its own questions about how it responded um, to such a, a, a uncertain time. So Akiko, if there's a second outbreak in New Zealand, does this? Do you anticipate that you would go along through the alert system as it stands, or do you think that this inquiry will be able to influence the you know meaningful changes in the short term? Yeah, how do you how do you think that'll play out? How has that been communicated to you? Yeah, I hope I hope that inquiries such as this will inform how we move forward if there are more um, active cases in the country. And as we move to um, loosen our borders with our surrounding islands, such as um, Tonga or Samoa or Fiji, um, also with our neighbor Australia, there is a need to to future-proof for those instances. But also, there is a future of of pandemics. This is not the last one. Um, So inquiries such as this is is a is a great deep dive into um, the nation's response to to create a new plan that continues to be successful. One of many many issues that will need to be addressed is whether immigrant communities such as the Pacifica and Asian populations or low socioeconomic households who may not have a television or access to internet in their homes, did they have access to critical information such as government announcements? Um, And were they feeling exempt and scared and confused um, during an already chaotic time? Those are questions that need to be asked about health literacy um, and inequity and allocation of additional resources to these communities. Um, I found that most of the announcements um, coming from official sources were in English. Um, And this is a multicultural, multilingual city, especially Auckland and Wellington and major cities um, in New Zealand. 
the English may not be spoken as the first language. So translation becomes a huge aspect of communication. If there is a second wave, I think that the the response needs to be more informed and more importantly, more inclusive of these communities. What's the general tone and vibe and um, sense of the pandemic coming from the, the public there in New Zealand? I don't want to paint a picture of, you know, perfection. There's been many things that have, been, have come up. There has been breach of lockdown from who else but the Ministry of Health, the official which lacked leadership on 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 such a grand scale, he was not dismissed or or fired from his position because Jacinda recognized his value in the public health sector during this time. It was not perfect, and there were many things that came up, such as kind of the inequity um, or kind of this the systemic um, injustice, or as the systemic kind of differences in the ways that communities were were communicated to. But I have to say, in general, there is a, a sense of relief uh, coming out of lockdown. We, we feel lucky. We feel lucky to live in a COVID-free world um, when we see other parts of the, re- the world still reeling from an ongoing pandemic. Um, and I think that the, the things that we spoke about, that there was a goal of elimination, there was a strategy um, and a process based on four phases. There was leadership from government to public health service to essential workers. And then there was this this communication that was traditional, new tech, formal and informal, but always kind of clear um, and fact-based that there was a nationwide solidarity with every milestone. When we flattened the curve, when less and less new cases were being te- were were come were coming up, um, and the easing of lockdown and gradual elimination of social distancing measures, it felt like a collective achievement. And you know, there will be ongoing criticism of Prime Minister. Ardern on the economic recovery. Um, There will be criticism on aspects of the response, but in general, I think there's a a huge sense of relief and gratitude and pride in what was being, what, what was accomplished here in New Zealand. You know, one thing that I think is really important to acknowledge is that healing can take place when you're not mad and frustrated at how you've been impacted. So if people are feeling like they were all in it together and they're feeling collectively confident and and pleased with how, as a nation, you handled the pandemic, then I think healing and recovery can begin and happen so much more effectively than if everybody's still mad and blaming each other because of what a catastrophe it was. It's going to be wonderful to watch New Zealand kind of come out of this and retrain and feel probably even closer and more connected than before the pandemic, which is, I think, 
the best possible outcome from a trauma is if you can feel a galvanization with your people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think every country that's been through this is going to come out of it with that. Yeah. Well, what are your guys' conclusions or concerns or ongoing questions? I think, just like you said, I think we have entered a, f- a, a phase of healing here in New Zealand. It's nearing a month since coming out of lockdown. Um, so most of our lives have, have returned back to, to a, a sort of normal. As for kind of my, my last thoughts, I think it's quick to forget how uncertain those weeks were for us, who and what supported us during critical times. And I want to express my gratitude for healthcare workers as well as essential workers across New Zealand who kept us healthy and safe. And I don't want to um, easily forget their service during that time. Um, I also want to acknowledge that there is widespread job loss um, across the economy, impacting small local businesses the hardest, and low-income Kiwis who may have been hit the hardest were most likely impacted with mental health or food insecurity and domestic violence, but they still put the priority um, as the health of New Zealanders. They put their community first. Um, So my heart does go out to all of those who are deeply affected. Lastly, I'd like to send my best wishes to you guys um, in America, to cities and nations that are still under lockdown or who may be, be beginning to see the ease of restrictions. The Maori phrase um, here that they use during these times is kia kaha, um, and it means stay strong as we lean into our shared ac- experience around the world. And I hope that um, we can create a new normal and rebuild a new world together. Yeah. From the U.S. perspective, not to be um, too optimistic or anything like that, I actually do see a lot of possibility coming out of this moment. I think that through this traumatic experience that we're still undergoing, to your point, Akiko, um, we've Mm -hmm. learned Mm -hmm. what is an essential worker, what is important, Mm -hmm. what is not important. I see so many possibilities for us to be a better place to live, a more healthy place to live, a more cohesive and not to say flattened, but diverse and strong place to live. If we have the strength to look at ourselves and say, we have all these tools, now it's time to act. I I really think that we can do it because we are our government. We live in a democracy. It's up to us. You're here. And I, I don't know. I like to think of things in terms of metaphors and I kind of see this whole situation as like the pouring of hydrogen peroxide on a deep and terribly polluted wound. It's exposed a lot of inequities in the United States that I think a lot of us are just really galvanized around dismantling and building not just a new normal, but a better normal. Absolutely. The good news is we can do it. We can do it. We will do it. We just got to show up for work. And I think it was so important um, to dissect this, all of the aspects of 
the pandemic response here in New Zealand through a lens of design, I, I found it so interesting um, to look at it as systems and phases and language and graphics and how all of that comes together in communication um, to the public. Um, and so thank you so much for the opportunity, Amy and Anna, to allow me to kind of to pull these pieces apart and put them back again and share what's going on in this uh, island nation um, very, very far away from you guys. It was, a, it was an amazing opportunity to, to look into my experience through the lens of design. Glad you could make it. So thank you, uh, Kiko and Anna. This has, been, this has been really insightful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We've got images and examples from this discussion in the show notes. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, it totally helps. And if you like what we do here, you can support Clever with a one-time donation by clicking the link in the description. We love chatting with you when you reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.